borrow this title, but I think I wanted to speak about something else, uh, which was basically about how uh, here at Cambridge we're trying to look uh, at solving uh, the problem of whether there's life in the universe from different aspects, from uh, the astronomical side uh, of things, but also from the chemical uh, point of view. Uh, today I will focus on uh, what I know best, which is the astronomical uh, part. As life emerged elsewhere, has there been another genesis? This talk is about considering biology in uh, basically life in an astronomical context. We have several reasons uh, to do that, but mostly what we want to do is understanding life here on Earth. How did it emerge? How did we come to being? Astronomy contains, uh, I think, an essential part in understanding our origin and seeing how we are placed within the many outcomes of nature. And that's <coughs> what we will look at today. So there are two parts to this talk. One would be a few methods of detection, a few questions first, then methods of detection about planets, about how we evolved to detect evidence of extraterrestrial biology. And then we will move on to the story behind the discovery of the TRAPPIST-1 planetary system. Uh, you've heard it came about last month, and this is so far one of our best targets to search for life elsewhere. So I'll go in detail uh, through that system. I will give a couple of warnings that they are graphs, and I, I think people shouldn't be afraid uh, of, of graphs. Um, and then mostly here so that uh, you know that what I'm saying is actually backed up by data. Uh, and uh, so if you don't understand them, don't worry. The important ones, I will actually spend some time uh, explaining uh, things important uh, to, to understand. So here is uh, the question that I think a lot of uh, people would like to answer. It's certainly something that has been uh, in the written form uh, as a question for at least uh, two and a half millennia. Uh, the question to the answer, uh, to that que uh, the answer to that question uh, to many astronomers is actually almost invariably, yes, there must be life somewhere else. That's what we call the Copernican principle, that essentially there is nothing so special about Earth. There are many, many stars and many planets out there in the universe. Life must have appeared somewhere else. And so to answer that question, uh, many astronomers are basically trying to find an Earth twin, uh, essentially uh, a planet that has the same size but the same mass as the Earth, orbiting a star that is about similar to the Sun at the right distance. Um, it's called an Earth twin or Earth 2.0 uh, by different uh, writers. Uh, the premise here is that if conditions somehow were fit to have life emerge here on Earth, then if you replicate similar conditions, then there is a good chance that you would eventually uh, find life somewhere else. I find that there are two problems, actually, with this approach. One, it's very hard to find something that has the size and the mass of the Earth orbiting a star like the Sun. And so we'll try to find actually to go around that problem. And the other is that if we do find an Earth twin orbiting a solar twin, then what we will have learned is that, well, yes, there is life elsewhere, but that essentially, given similar conditions, we end up with similar results, which is somewhat limited. And I think that it's sort of disappointing, it would be disappointing and surprising if Earth were to be the only habitable template out there. <coughs> so we're going to try to think a bit broader and trying to imagine <coughs> different. And so the question that I think is more interesting to answer is how frequently is there life? It's just basically one word uh, that is changing. And when <coughs> you ask that question, then you have to answer, to, to, to find out 
where Earth isn't, essentially, where how many stars that are not like the sun have planets like the Earth. Uh, for instance, half the stars in the sky are in pairs. You have two stars. Is that important at all uh, or not? And so it forces us to basically not just detect another Earth twin, but study really, really its context. How do we stand among the whole of nature, not just our narrow corner, which is essentially a sun-like star? So one, way, one thing that we have discovered in now more than 20 years of finding planets elsewhere is that planetary <coughs> systems are extremely diverse. You find them with all sorts of orbital separation from the star on any type of star <coughs> that you can uh, imagine almost. <coughs> they exist in systems where you have two stars in the center or two stars far apart and each of the stars has a planet. All this diversity here tells us that, well, the solar system is maybe part of a greater whole, and we should search, I think, uh, onto what looks like maybe more exotic locations, so that actually for the rest of the universe may not look that exotic, and may actually be closer to the norm. So essentially we're forced to embrace that diversity, and with that in mind, let's go and start searching for Earth-like planets. So what do we mean uh, by that? The first thing that uh, we thought was, well, you know, we're still looking for something similar to the Earth. We don't know what ensemble Earth is part of. Right? We don't know how big or how small a planet is good uh, for life or hospitable. So we want to basically catch wide enough a net to catch planets, right, that are correct for what we want to answer, uh, but not too wide so that we collect so many things or miss and spend a lot of time basically finding <coughs> nothing. So we want basically find something that has probably assigned to the Earth. And here there's some wiggle room. You'll notice actually the lack of numbers. It's a very qualitative uh, approach here. Uh, because after all, we don't know. So it's maybe something like plus or minus 10, 20% the size of the Earth. We want also a planet that has a temperature sort of similar uh, to the Earth. And here, the wiggle room is much wider. Because the atmosphere is, uh, the temperature is something that we don't get right away. What we is the distance of the planet to the star. But after, the atmosphere can change things a lot. So for instance, the top of the atmosphere on Venus is about uh, uh, slightly below freezing, actually, uh, if you were to look at it. And if, if you think about it, you think actually Venus is colder than the Earth, although it's closer to, to the sun. It reflects so much more light, so it wastes a lot and sends back a lot of sunlight into space. But actually, because it has an intense greenhouse effect, the surface, uh, could basically melt less. So temperature essentially is affected a lot uh, by, uh, by the atmosphere, and so we want here to cast as wide a net as possible, because after all, we don't know. So we set on to find these planets, then to study their atmosphere and gauge uh, the temperature of the surface. But the most constraining item uh, in, in all that is that we want a planet that we can study. Uh, it's all good, and for, for many times we we found, and you've seen it in the news, and now we've been announcing uh, that we found yet another uh, planet in the habitable zone. Uh, most of them, though, we <coughs> just knew that they existed, but we couldn't actually investigate further, only know that they are there. So what do we want to find first? It's what, uh, what we'll define, what we can study. So if we look at Earth, one of the uh, uh, pervasive uh, mechanism that change the chemistry of atmosphere is basically photosynthesis, oxygenic photosynthesis. Plants receive light, take up some water and some carbon dioxide and release oxygen. 
that changed and flooded <coughs> the chemistry of our atmosphere. This light gas rises quite high up into the atmosphere, and that is something that we as astronomers can find. I will actually show you evidence for that. And that's what we call the biomatter, biological <coughs> matter. It's not just oxygen, <coughs> and composed also of ozone, of course, carbon dioxide as well, uh, N2O, methane, CH4, all the smell essentially in a forest, also biomarkers, everything uh, uh, that we smell uh, pretty much around us is a biomarker. However, what you want is a sort of light gas that can rise up into the atmosphere and be uh, more easily noticeable. You notice that if you leave a forest, you don't smell uh, the forest. It remains very localized. So how do we find evidence for something like, for instance, oxygen? Well, one way to approach that is actually to look uh, at a lunar eclipse. Uh, how many of you have seen and witnessed uh, a lunar eclipse? Just so quite, quite a few people. So, so what happens uh, during the lunar eclipse is uh, uh, basically <coughs> we have the sun, the earth, and the moon all aligned. And the only light that reaches the moon is sunlight that goes through the atmosphere of the earth. And the <coughs> atmosphere of the earth has the capacity to actually get rid of the blue light. That's why it's the blue at midnight, essentially. And red light goes unimpeded. So essentially what you have here is the lights of a thousand sunrises and sunsets uh, shining onto the scene. And so, because the atmosphere of the Earth has transformed the sunlight, uh, then we can see and test this idea that maybe we can detect, you know, if there is light uh, here through the atmosphere. And if you place an instrument right there on the moon uh, called a spectrograph, you can get uh, data similar to that. And that data, basically what it tells you is the amount of light as a function of color. And you see that there are some colors here where there's structure, and that's what we call oxygen here. There's ozone. All these elements here, water here, is actually a bit of pollutant here. Uh, so you can detect not just uh, light, but uh, intelligence, I guess, uh, on Earth, or <laughs> lack of. <laughs> so this is telling us that just from looking at the moon, which is basically here a reflection uh, of what's happening back <coughs> you can actually already uh, notice a few molecules quite, quite clearly. Another way to look at that, and uh, that's footage that I could not pass on, that was taken uh, by the astronauts on Apollo 12 as they deorbited the moon. They just pointed the camera back to Earth. We have Earth here covering the sun. And you see here that arc here. This is our atmosphere. And you see it's sort of red. Uh, that's because basically the blue light uh, got uh, stopped in the atmosphere. And that's what we want uh, to study. So for an exoplanet, we do things slightly different, but basically we keep uh, uh, that sort of approach. So let's have that. We have a star, and we have a planet without an atmosphere. And uh, if that planet passes in front of its star, then some of the, the starlight here will get blocked for someone that observes like me around here. And what we will measure is a certain size. And that size will basically not change as a function of color. However, if you place an atmosphere like that of the Earth right here, and then the blue light impacts. You see that actually quite a large number of these sun rays here gets stopped. And so you measure a bigger size for the planet. It just looks more opaque because all the blue light got stopped. However, if you look into the red light, then, then you measure a smaller planet. And so all our, uh, all our efforts into understanding what's inside the atmosphere of other planets, uh, of planets orbiting other stars in the sun, relies on measuring very carefully the size of a planet as a function of color. Essentially, we're looking at shadows within shadows. We're very good at that. <laughs> um, 
So we have done this sort of technique now on more than 100 planets, but big gas giants, more like Jupiter, orbiting very close to their star. So again, uh, weird planets, uh, things that look very exotic uh, to us. There is one other way that actually life uh, impacts uh, the amount of life that the, the Earth receives, and it's something quite beautiful. Then. So this is uh, this is a tree, and uh, it's very much from here. Um, you see there's uh, uh, blue sky around here. You have uh, the grass there. You see that the leaves are sort of uh, darkish. They, they reflect a bit of light, and that's taken in the optical wavelength. So that's where uh, photosynthesis works. So, uh, plants uh, basically uh, capture that light, uh, make what they do uh, to live, and uh, it looks like very normal. However, if one were to look in uh, the infrared, which is a part <coughs> of the light spectrum that we don't see with our eyes, but can sense with our uh, skin. You know, you have to think of, if you hold your hands around a candle, you kind of know where the candle is, right? You see uh, with your hands. Um, if you uh, place a detector that is uh, sensitive to infrared, the tree uh, looks like this. So very different. And what you see here is that the sky is completely dark. And that's basically because the atmosphere is transparent uh, to, uh, to red light, and so it goes right through. It's as if there is no atmosphere. And you see that this is very shiny, and that's because the tree and the grass basically reflect uh, this infrared radiation. They actually use it in order to cool themselves, uh, I think, uh, not the biologists. But um, the difference between how much they absorb light into about the green uh, or uh, the visible part, and how much they reflect into <coughs> the infrared is something that we could also potentially look at. And I will show you evidence of that. So we'll move again to the moon. Uh, and the moon here has very, uh, a very small crescent. You see that crescent here? It's a very tiny crescent. So it's almost a new moon. It's almost completely dark. And I'm sure you've noticed several times that although the moon is supposed to be dark, it's actually <coughs> not completely dark. That's what we call the Earth shine. And what happens uh, during that time is uh, that so you have here the sun, and it shines uh, to the Earth. And some of that light gets reflected in every direction, but some of it basically impacts the dark side of the moon, and it goes back. And if you're there, on the night side of the Earth, you can see that. So essentially, it's a way to, from the night side to observe the day side. Yeah, tricky, isn't it? Um, and we don't get a, a very precise image, but we get like a global image of the planet. And again, if you place the same instrument, on to that moon here and measure uh, the amount of light that you get. You see this very structured pattern here and you have all sorts of molecules, carbon dioxide here, you have methane, water, oxygen, ozone. Uh, here you see the blue sky, essentially it's bluer, so it's brighter here and here it's darker. Uh, so that's the blue sky, so you would know it's blue on another planet, isn't that great? And here you find that in that part, there's slightly more light than in that part and that's basically vegetation. Vegetation is brighter in the infrared, and you can see that sign basically uh, on the reflection of the Earth onto the moon. And that's something that we can uh, do on these planets as well. So we haven't uh, done so precisely uh, to detect <coughs> vegetation, but we have detected things like water uh, using this technique. So all this introduction was basically to, to show you that one, we have thought of techniques <coughs> Uh, that allow us to detect what's within the atmosphere of another planet. And then we, we check which molecules they are, and the balance of each of the molecules with respect to each other will tell us whether this is basically a biological process or whether it is uh, something else. 
So now we need a planet that basically uh, allows us to apply this technique. And that's what we call a transiting planet. We need a planet that passes in front of a star. And that's Venus uh, in the solar system, transiting the sun. This is uh, footage, so uh, you see how beautiful the sun is, you know, very buoyant. And that's the planet. And you see the atmosphere here is tiny, right? It's very hard to measure. However, we have the tool uh, to do that. And we'll come, actually, to why this is so small and, and the reason uh, why we don't want a star like the sun, actually. So how do you search for transiting planets? <coughs> how do you choose where to point? It's often a question I get asked. Like, do you point randomly? Well, in, in some way, yes, actually. Do you just stop? <laughs> um, but uh, there's a little more thought to that. You, you want, you know, there's, something like there's about 300 billion stars right in front of you, right? There's a lot. Uh, so you can select, for instance, the closest or the brightest or, you know, the smallest, uh, which is uh, what we did. So how do you choose? So we'll go, like, uh, to one star, which is basically <coughs> like a star like the sun, and, uh, and try to imagine uh, what it would be like to see a planet transiting from us. So here's the star, and let's make a planet like Jupiter uh, pass in front of you. The planet here? <coughs> yep, ah, very good. Uh, so the planet just passed in front of the star, and you see that the brightness, which was here, let's say 100%, went down to 99%. So a small change of brightness for a few hours. And that's what we uh, measured, that's actually how we found uh, most of the planets known uh, so far. If you want to study the atmosphere, which is a tiny red uh, circle around the planet, Basically, the change in the depth of that signal is tiny. It's 100 times smaller. And that basically is telling us the size of the planet with relative to the size of the star. And this is telling us the size of the atmosphere on top of that. And that's what might change as a function of color. That's, what, uh, that's where we get uh, our information about the atmosphere. So to find planets like this, you basically need a very coarse sort of instrument. Because they can happen about everywhere in the sky. And so you want sort of, you know, a precision around this, allowing you to detect that signal. And then once you've identified a planet, then you want to get something much more precise in order to look at the atmosphere. And so at the moment we use uh, to detect this big planet, something which is about 10 centimeters in diameter. It tells us that the planet is there. And then we take something about one meter in diameter to confirm that. And then we go to space. We take the Hubble Space Telescope or the very large telescopes in Chile and then we measure, basically, the contribution of the atmosphere. And people thought, well, let's do that for Earth-sized planets. Problem with Earth-sized planets, well, they, I don't know if you notice it, it's just there, uh, tiny. Make that transit. <coughs> <laughs> so this is actually amplified by a factor 10. This is basically the size of the planet, about the same size as the atmosphere here. So you need your most precise telescope so you need to point it randomly across the sky. That's a lot of time spent uh, on that telescope. Very expensive and not uh, very easy. And so one way to solve this is basically to change uh, the size of the star. If we shrink the star, then things get much, much easier. So we have a small star here. The planet remains the same. And you see that the difference in size here, the planet looks much bigger. right? And so it casts <coughs> a bigger shadow and we recover this 1% here. So, okay, a star 10 times smaller than the sun. It's something good to point at. All right, okay. So once we've decided uh, to do that, what else would this basically uh, have as a consequence? Well, it turns out that if you choose a small star, 
It has a whole series of consequences that help you immensely finding planets like this Earth and studying their atmosphere. <coughs> so one thing uh, that there is is that if you take a star like the Sun, you may have about the right distance, which we call the habitable zone, it's about roughly twice what you receive from the sun to half uh, of the energy that you receive from the sun, roughly. And that's about the size, you know, the, the Earth would be uh, within that habitable zone. If you take a bigger star, then at the same distance the planet would be roasted. However, if you take a small star, then, you know, at the same distance it'd be cold. So if you're closer, then it's okay. That's good, right? Because if you're closer, the planet comes back quicker. Uh, imagine Earth around the sun. It will pass in front of the sun. It will take about 10 hours to do that, and it will do that once a year. So if it's cloudy that day, well, that's too bad. <laughs> so uh, it will take a long time to discover such a planet. First, a small signal, and then it doesn't happen often. However, if you point a tiny star, about 10 times smaller than the sun, the habitable zone here, that's about a week. So you will get 50 transits, 50 chances to detect a planet, 50 chances to study the atmosphere of a planet every year. <laughs> So you gain, essentially, a factor 15 feet. And that's very important, because we're about to launch this enormous telescope here. This is as big, I think, here. It's as big as like a tennis court. This is about six and a half meter, it's enormous. But um, this telescope here has the right technology to allow us to look at the tiny variations in the size of a planet as a function of color in order to infer what's inside the atmosphere. The problem is that it has a limited lifetime. It will remain in space about six and a half years, maybe up to 10 years, depending on how well uh, the facility survives. And this means that if we need several elements to detect a planet transit and study its atmosphere, then we may be limited in what we learn. <coughs> and for instance, we think that we need 15 transits of an Earth-flat planet in order to detect its atmosphere conclusively. For a mission lifetime of six years, it means that they are not enough transits within the mission lifetime to actually find an Earth-like planet and study its atmosphere. So we must go basically to shorter and shorter orbits, meaning shorter and shorter stars. Another advantage uh, that a, a small star tells you is that it's actually easier to find a planet passing in front of it. Uh, do you see the, the line here, <coughs> barely? Yeah, so let's, Take a line from the top of the star here to the bottom of the planet up, and trace a big circle here and the same. So this circle, basically, the fraction of that circle compared to the rest, is basically the amount of people, anyone along this, this axis would basically see the planet covering uh, the, the star. If you place your planet further, then that angle here becomes smaller and further becomes yet smaller. So it's much easier to be closer to the star. If you're closer to the star, then a lot more of the planets out there will just happen to cover their, their star. And about 10 times more for a habitable planet orbiting a small star rather than Earth compared to the sun. So to summarize, by considering small stars, it becomes about, uh, the signal to detect the planet becomes about 100 times deeper, 50 times more often, and will happen on basically 10 times more stars. So why not go there? Right? And that's what we thought. Essentially, these small stars, we call them altruical dwarfs, and they offer basically our chances to study the climate of terrestrial planets and to start now, habitable or not. So I'm interested in all sorts of planets, not just 
the ones uh, that turn out uh, to be uh, fine for them. But it just happens uh, to be, and that's one of the most, uh, the, the first important graphs uh, coming, is that these stars are also the most common type of stars in our galaxy. So what we have here is a number of objects within a certain volume. And so for that, we chose 10 parsecs. So it's a, an astronomical distance of about 45 uh, light years. And within this volume around the solar system, there are about 300 stars. And you see the number of stars like the sun, that's what, four. Right? That's not that many, right? If you widen a bit, you actually get slightly more. It's about 10 to 15% of stars in what we call a solar neighborhood are like the sun. However, if you go to stars that are about 10 times smaller than uh, the sun, whoop, see how big. And so for a quarter, uh, sorry, half uh, of the stars in the solar neighborhood have less than a quarter of the mass and of the size of the sun. And so these are the most common stars. So by targeting these small stars, we actually may learn uh, about the most common type of planets. And if they turn out <coughs> to have a size, a flat planet, then the most common planet out there is actually on a star that is not like the sun. And that's very important to understand, you know, what, how frequently is there life out there? Because if we do find it on these guys, then we've had, we have answered that question much quicker than if we look at here. And that's why we decided to build a new facility. It's called Speculos. It's actually in construction now. We have four telescopes. You see them here. Uh, they will be constructed in Chile, about one meter in diameter. They will all be robotic, so we don't have to go and spend night upon night uh, at the <coughs> telescope, although we like going to Chile. Uh, very good fish. <laughs> so you see here, actually, it's a, a recent picture. You see two of the domes, and here are the installation for the two other domes. One telescope has been installed here, and the second is actually almost uh, en route uh, to, uh, to Chile. So this is about to come. Um, in order to convince uh, uh, people to, to construct uh, this facility, or rather to, to give us the money uh, to construct this thing, we needed a, a prototype. And that's where TRAPPIST comes into play. So TRAPPIST is a telescope that was already installed in Chile. It's about 60 centimeters in diameter. It's uh, located in uh, La Silla. It's a very beautiful uh, place in the desert uh, in Chile. And that telescope has been, um, we've been using it with a colleague uh, called Michael Junon, uh, who led uh, the discovery. Uh, this has been used many times to find planets about the size of Jupiter. And um, I've been interested in finding planets orbiting brand dwarfs, sort of weird uh, uh, objects smaller than stars. <coughs> Whereas Michael had been interested in these ultra-cool dwarfs, and so he invited me uh, <coughs> to this team, and we started uh, working together. And we prototyped it, so we basically took about the 50, 50 closest, brightest, uh, small star that we could find from the skies of Chile, and we started monitoring, night after night, essentially, waiting for the passage of a planet in front of the star. Uh, in 2013, we showed that, indeed, we could get the right precision, We've applied for the money, Speculos got accepted, and in the meantime, while the construction uh, was <coughs> happening, then Trappist uh, continued to observe until uh, autumn 2015, when the first planet around the Trappist-1 system started to transit. And so since uh, we've published two papers here uh, in the Nature magazine, <coughs> it's uh, uh, by uh, Michael Gillon, I invite you also to go on our website. Uh, 
And uh, that system is remarkable. We were actually really, really amazed at what we found. We found essentially seven planets with sizes and masses similar to the Earth, all orbiting one of the smallest stars that we could actually find. It's more than 10 times smaller than the sun, or more than 10 times less massive than the sun. Um, let's put the data here. So that's the other very important graph uh, here. And it's, it's so important I would spend some time explaining it so you can appreciate it uh, uh, to its just uh, value. So what we have here is the amount of light. The higher you go, the more light. That's 100% here. And you see there is some noise, so that's basically a sort of flicker uh, due to the, to the amount of light and then precision uh, that we get. And this is time. So this is, these are days. Essentially, that's day 52, 54, 56, you know, 55, 53 would be here. And each of these dots here is basically a planet that passes in front of the star. The white uh, points are here taken from a, a space satellite called Kipper. So we knew that uh, the system existed. We had found three of the planets uh, and announced it uh, in May last year. And then we triggered uh, this space telescope saying, okay, well, uh, there's something really fascinating happening here. Let's stay on it for three weeks. And uh, basically that's what the white is. So the space telescope here is observing. Every now and then you see this, this hole here and here. That's basically when the telescope had uh, to turn, send back the data. So the telescope is further away uh, than the Earth is from the sun. So in the meantime, we tried to gather data from our ground-based uh, telescopes uh, when we could. And each of the color here corresponds to one of the planets. And so let's move, basically. And you see that the planets, the distance here gives us the period of the planet. And these come, and this is three weeks <coughs> of data. And that's so unambiguous, refined, how clear, right, these, these transits uh, happen. So this is basically all the seven planets uh, in uh, the TRAPPIST-1 uh, system. If we collect each of these events, for instance, if we place this on top of uh, that one, on top of that one, on top of that one, then we can construct the following uh, diagram. So these are basically the transits, if you now recognize the shape, and you see that the further the planet is out, the wider it becomes, because it's just a bit slower, and so it takes more time to pass in front of the star. So the closest planet to the star is about one and a half day. The furthest is in the range of about 20 days. And actually, we, we, we did not know uh, about two weeks ago how long the orbital period uh, of planet H was, but we actually have found out just two days ago. So it should appear uh, tomorrow uh, in a flash. Uh, <laughs> what we have here is that the planets you see are really close uh, to their star. This is only 6% of the distance between the Earth and the Sun. So really, really <coughs> hugging, uh, hugging the star. What is beautiful here is how small also the star is. That's basically our Sun compared to what Trappist-1 could look. And it's just barely bigger, actually, than, than Jupiter. So um, let's actually uh, show it in comparison uh, to Jupiter. So, uh, and it's remarkable that Actually, you can compare it to something within the solar system. So here we have the star, which is slightly bigger uh, than Jupiter. And here are each of the planets. So the sizes here are all relative to each other. So I chose basically Jupiter equal one. So this is slightly bigger and these are smaller. Here are the orbital periods. And you see that all of these uh, satellites around Jupiter look uh, very similar. Now, one thing that is uh, interesting here is that 
actually uh, these satellites here uh, are all so close to one another that they interact and the orbits are never exactly completely circular. The year essentially around Jupiter uh, keeps changing. And this is basically what is happening uh, here and I will show you uh, evidence uh, of that. And it's great because uh, it gives us a chance to measure mass. So these uh, two show you uh, how the system compares to the solar system. So this is basically Trappist-1 here, a small star compared to the sun. And you see here the planets of the solar system. That's our Earth here. The moon is barely distinguishable here. That's Jupiter. See, Jupiter is big, fairly easy uh, to detect as it casts a shadow in front uh, of, uh, of a star in the sun. And these are the seven planets here in Trappist-1, which look really small, right? And if they were to pass and transit in front of a star like the sun, it would be very hard to find. However, they transit uh, a small star. And so basically we can equate the size of the star. This is basically to show the amount of shadow that the planet casts. And you see that they become just as big as Jupiter. <laughs> so they cast on that star just because the star is small, as much shadow as Jupiter does. Another way to represent the system is to show uh, how uh, the planets distribute as a function of distance. So here we have a star, Mercury, Venus, Earth, uh, Mars, and the asteroid belt. This is about one time the amount of light received uh, uh, by the Earth uh, from the sun. And you see that some of the planets are actually quite close to that. This is twice, this is four times, this is half, a quarter, and an eighth. And basically all seven planets here are sufficiently far close to the star that you can expect that under correct uh, geology <coughs> and atmospheric conditions that part of the surface could have liquid water. We don't know yet if they do, but they all are in what we call this temperate uh, regime. And you can compare actually to the solar uh, system uh, planets. We actually wonder if there isn't a bit of liquid water from time to time on Mars. We know that there is some here, quite a lot in England. Um, and uh, <laughs> for a while uh, in, in Venus, uh, people wonder also whether there had been uh, liquid water uh, for a short while. So it all depends basically on its atmosphere. If the atmosphere of Venus here was cleaner, uh, maybe it would be uh, hospitable. So the seven planets essentially align up very well with the solar system. And these three here are the most uh, interesting uh, to us in that um, uh, under what we understand for that system, they actually might be the most uh, propitious or the one that has the most potential for vast extent of liquid Although that's, again, something we need to verify. Um, on the right-hand side, we have the physical size. So this was basically the distance from the stars, a measure of uh, the energy that the planet receives. Here is the actual size of the system. So you see here, solar system, Mercury, Venus, and the Earth. Trappist-1 basically fits in, in that tiny area within the solar system. And so if you zoom out, you get the red circle here. And you see uh, the distance of the planets, that's how the Jupiter uh, moons uh, look like. So although in orbital periods, the system looks very similar, in distance, actually, uh, this is quite smaller. And this here is the distance between the Earth and the moon. And see how big it is compared to the difference between uh, the, the, the distance between two planets. And that's why that we decided to produce uh, this, this graph. It, it, it actually doesn't look great, right? but it's... it's it's actually rare to be able to measure, to show both the size of the planet and the distance at the right scale. So if you take this side here, the other would be uh, here. And the reason for that, if we place here the Earth-Moon distance uh, here, so here the Earth is exactly the same uh, size uh, as this one, you see. 
Here's the moon. Basically, the two planets here are three times the Earth-Moon distance from one another. It's actually so big that Trappist 1G causes tides on 1F four times more important than the moon does on the Earth. And from 1F, you would see 1G about twice as big uh, as the moon in the sky. It would be beautiful, I think, uh, uh, to be uh, over there. So now that we've compared and, and seen what is similar um, uh, for these planets compared to the solar system, let's look at what is actually different. And one thing that is different is that uh, we expect the planets to be tidally synchronized. And that's something that happens uh, to happen to the moon around the Earth. So the moon always looks at the same uh, face towards us. We always see the same uh, surface. And that's because of the tides uh, that the Earth raises on the moon. So although the Earth creates tides here, we also create tides on the moon. So similarly, you will have the star, and the planet will basically orbit the star. But if you are here at this point on the orbit, uh, say January at midday, well, the next day, essentially, January 2nd, you will still be at midday uh, on, that, uh, on that point. You will actually always be at midday. You will never leave midday if you stay on that point on the surface. So you have a permanent day side and a permanent night side. And we do not know exactly what impact that has to habitability. Some people say that it's a problem. Others say that it isn't. The great chance that we have with Trappist-1 is that we can actually check one day. And we will be able to check very soon. I'm convinced that it's actually not much of an issue, but uh, we will see uh, uh, when the time uh, comes. One other thing uh, that is uh, rather surprising about the system is how the orbits are structured. That's what we call dynamics. So for instance, when uh, the inner planet uh, goes around the star eight times, the, outer, uh, the, the, the second planet, C, goes exactly five times. And then when you take planet C, when it goes five times, then planet D goes three times, etc., etc. All the planets are basically sort of synchronized. And that is actually quite important. Uh, it's, it's telling us about the origin of the system, how uh, the planets formed. It's also helping the stability of the system over a long, long period of time. And because this is special, these ratios between the orbits, we could actually compute how far that planet, basically that was the ratio of uh, F to G, how far was H. And H is basically a 3 to 2. So we could predict where planet H was. And that's what happened uh, two days ago. Basically, we found the planet where it was predicted, mathematically. I think it shows how science works. <laughs> um, uh, what happens is that because the planet always meet about the same time, you know, because every basically eight years of the innermost and five years of uh, the, the planet C, they meet about the same uh, spot on the sky. That means that they, their interactions between the planets become more important. And so basically uh, they create tides on each other which are important and we expect, for instance, tides on the innermost planet about 10 times that of what happens on Io, which is the most volcanic uh, planet or object in the solar system. So hopefully soon we will be able to witness volcanism uh, and active geology at the surface of another world. Wouldn't that also be extraordinary? <laughs> so when the planets are actually close uh, to what we call here these, these resonances, uh, essentially, um, we see the planet come sometimes early, sometimes late. So this is the data. And then I'll explain it to you. So here we have basically one transit, and then another, a few days later, another, a few days later, another. And you see that normally they should always come back at exact precision, right? It's like a clock. Except that here it doesn't. 
Most of these seem to be aligned, but that one is a bit late and that one is a bit early. If you look at this other planet, you see that here they really do not align. And it seems like the planets have lost a sort of synchronization. And if you look at planets F and G, it's actually uh, even uh, crazier. And that is called uh, transit timing variation. Essentially, it's a, a change in when the transit exactly happens. So you basically chronometer uh, when uh, the planet passes in front of the star, and you realize it doesn't come back exactly the same uh, orbital period, so not every year exactly. And the reason uh, why that happens is uh, the following. So imagine you have two planets, you are here, and so you see both planets pass in front of the star here. The planets basically will attract each other, right, uh, due to gravity. As they do so, they will slightly change their orbit. This one will be accelerated, and this one will be decelerated. So basically, oh, you change. Um, and because they are on a different orbit, this orbit would be a bit shorter, and this orbit would be a bit longer than the one before. And so next time they arrive at the conjunction, basically this one will be lagging, and this one will be early. And so you will basically get uh, a transit, uh, uh, a change in the transit time. And so when they are in that position, they start again uh, exchanging a bit of energy, essentially orbital energy, and they sort of return to their prior orbit. And that, um, that sort of interaction actually allows us to measure the mass uh, of the planet. So we had the radius from how much shadow the planet was casting, now we have mass. Now if we have mass and radius, we can <coughs> get density. If we have density, we have an idea of the composition of this world. And that's one of the, the, the final graph, I, I believe. This is basically a graph that shows us the relation between the mass of the planet here and the radius of the planet. Venus and Earth are here, and if you have an Earth-like composition, you basically follow this very thick line here. And you see here that all our objects basically are around that sort of line. They have error bars here quite large, but eventually they will be reduced. They have already reduced by half in the meantime while we were uh, basically uh, uh, publishing uh, the results. So soon we'll actually know the mass and the radius of this planet better than any other planet uh, outside of the solar system. So let's summarize a little here. What do we have here? We may actually be looking at the most common mode of planet formation. Remember, these are the most common type of stars, and they seem to be producing a lot more planets, certainly than the inner solar system uh, managed to do. More rocky worlds than the solar system. It's also this, a system which, although it's similar to the Earth, is also very different in other ways. The star emits a lot of infrared radiation, it will also emit a fair amount of UV and X-rays. And how that impacts the chemistry of the atmosphere, the emergence and the persistence of life at the surface is completely unknown. But again, here we not too bothered. This is the first time that we can actually verify and move from theoretical uh, speculations to empirical verification. The final bit is that this system is optimal for atmospheric characterization. Optimal, and I will show you the first attempts at actually studying the atmosphere of the planet. The good news also is that in Trappist we only observed 50 systems and found one. Speculos, our main facility, will observe 500 as it starts observing uh, over the summer, and it basically it should be completed the construction uh, before uh, uh, Christmas next year, this year. So we hope to detect something like 20 to 30, hopefully more, new Earth systems. All of these we will be able to study in detail and know essentially what climate uh, those worlds have, how different uh, our environment is away from the, uh, the solar system. 
And you have to imagine here, if you look in the solar system, we have Venus and the Earth, very similar planets in mass and in radius, but very different climates. So if we have 30 Earths, how many different climates would we find? Would it be only a variation of the two, or will it be much more exotic and astonishing? And so that's what we thought. Okay, well, let's go for it. So these are graphs of basically what they show is that with the Hubble Space Telescope here, we captured two planets as they pass in front of the star. So you have one planet here, second planet comes in, first planet goes out, second planet goes out. And this is basically in different colors. We measure the size of the planet, right? We would measure how big this is. And then we organize the size of the planet here as a function of color. And if the planets had enormous hydrogen envelopes, we would have detected it. What this is telling us is that the planets don't have hydrogen, so they actually look very Earth-like. They don't look like Neptune or Uranus. And what this tells us, these are our measurements, is that the uncertainty that we have here tells us that if we were to observe another 10 times each of the two planets, we would already be able to know whether they're more like Venus or more like the Earth. It wouldn't tell us how much of uh, gas uh, of a certain molecule they're, they're in the atmosphere, but already whether the atmosphere is sort of dense like Venus and cloudy, or rather it's more light like that of the Earth. And so it's sort of nice and neat that basically the study of alien environments has finally started. We are already investigating those. The remaining four planets uh, in the system that we knew the orbital period of have already had data taken and the analysis is undergoing. The seventh will no doubt uh, have more. And we will apply again, get more data yet, um, and continue that exploration. So I will thank you here and uh, thank you for sharing. Well, that depends on the heaping on each of the planets. So uh, the question here is that, well, if you have a cold planet, um, but it's tidally heated, then it would be actually warmer. So basically you can go like Mars, for instance, if it has a neighbor, could uh, be warmed to have liquid water uh, under those conditions. That will depend a lot. Again, here we don't really know. We only know Earth fairly well, how much it dissipates time, for instance, uh, how much it dissipates energy. So we don't really uh, know that well for Venus, for we don't know that variation either. But the good news is that for TRAPPIST-1, uh, we will know. We actually, I was uh, listening to a colleague who had actually figured out how to extract this information out of our own data. So stay tuned. Yeah. More of an engineering question, um, how you actually get the information in the first place. I can understand how you extrapolate things uh, from the figures you saw, but the differences we're talking about are silly <laughs> dark sides. <laughs> And your signal, signal strength in your, uh, in your resolution is so small. How do you actually determine that this is actually, you're actually watching just one particular star, let alone a transit of a planet, as opposed to the star right next to you, which blinks with a couple of AU behind it? Oh, uh, because actually sometimes stars move on the sky, so actually you can look behind after a while. But you're talking about, for instance, 40 odd day periods of, a, of, a, of, a, of an orbit. How do you maintain that you're still looking actually at that? Oh. As opposed to something else, I'm noising the system. How are you, you moving that? You mean that because uh, of uh, the time that it takes for light to reach us? So, I mean, the light has been uh, moving from that star to ours That's in about point. 40 years. 40 years is really, really small in terms of a scale for a change in what happens. Uh, so, we expect that if the planets are there, were there 40 years ago, it took 40 years for the light to reach. Right now, 
they're still here. Another way, I mean, what I, what I find uh, odd in, in, in putting a question about this is that, for instance, if you listen to, to, to the thunderstorm, you see the, the, the flash, and three seconds, six seconds later, you hear the sound. You don't think of the sound coming from the past, right? And yet it did, right? It took six seconds to arrive after the light. Um, similarly here, if you zoom, that's what we see. Uh, it doesn't uh, matter as much. Uh, and 40 years, uh, we expect nothing will happen to the planet. 40 years, if they manage to survive for 10 billion. <laughs> Yeah, uh, we wish for uh, um, the most extraordinary stuff, of course. <laughs> um, so what we hope to detect is, uh, first we'll look at um, how much uh, water vapor uh, there is in the atmosphere. That's something that we should uh, find out pretty much. Is that answering? Yes, yeah. Um, and then we'll look at um, the biomarkers and try to find out uh, how much of it uh, there is. If we find oxygen, for instance, it doesn't tell us there is life right away. It tells us there is oxygen within the atmosphere. So we'd have to find out if this oxygen is in balance to the rest. So, uh, for instance, on the Earth's uh, atmosphere, the oxygen is out of balance. I, I believe, uh, maybe someone may correct me, that if you were to remove all plants here, it would basically disappear in about 10,000 years. So clearly it's reacting with other uh, species. It's telling us that something must be always replenishing its uh, oxygen. So we will be looking at different other molecules and find out how much they are uh, in quantity compared to an one another. And that will tell us uh, whether what we see is um, in the meantime, um, if we observe, say, a, a certain amount of water, a certain amount of CO2, a certain amount of methane, it would tell us about how much uh, greenhouse effect the planet is supposed to receive. It will give us information about the climate there, how hot mm -hmm. the surface is, uh, how dense the atmosphere is, will tell us basically from temperature and at the pressure of the atmosphere whether water could actually possibly uh, remain liquid on the surface. So only uh, the first stages are basically uh, trying to find out first if the planets have an atmosphere and then trying to find what type of gas they have, then calculating the amount, and then trying to find out uh, what these guys have. Um, the sort of life we're looking at is more, you know, trees, bacteria. Uh, we don't hope uh, to find nitrous oxide uh, quite right away. Well, it would mean that everyone's a stupid as they are. <laughs> Um, 
Yeah, I don't really know an answer, a proper answer to that. I think here what we're looking at is uh, uh, we're looking uh, at the planet, you know, now or you know, forty years, depending on the issue. If you think the, the delay uh, in the timeline came, it would be surprising over, you know, again, uh, the billions of years that we're talking about. You know, this planet may have been here for several billion years. That something extraordinary happened on them, created this. Uh, basically, this chemical monetary atmosphere, and then vanished uh, just suddenly. Uh, it may happen, but statistically, it's not what you would expect. Uh, uh, hopefully, this is not the only system that we have. So the way we, we can answer is by looking at several systems. If there's something unlikely to happen, it's unlikely, even more unlikely to happen twice or three times or four times over. Yes, yeah, they, they are. Uh, so uh, SETI, the search for extraterrestrial intelligence, will turn uh, to TRAPPIST-1. Uh, the sad thing is that it's actually not far from uh, on the sky. If you were to look, there's a <coughs> galaxy which emits a lot in the radio waves. Uh, the sky. So it's a bit tough, but yeah, they will try to find out, actually, they asked us for when. Uh, so the planets are going, like, as you mentioned, the planets are going like this on the center of the sky. And every now and then, the planets cover each other. And there's one way uh, that SETI would work, uh, is to, if one of these planets communicates with that one, we can basically, they align, that we can basically listen. <laughs> some of the, the radio signal might leak. And so they ask us when this uh, sort of configuration happens, which does happen quite frequently in these systems. Um, so, I mean, I'm not too hopeful. It's one of those things that we, we you know, it's on the checklist, right? But it's not uh, what I hope, uh, what, what I expect. So, uh, you mean fr from the star itself or from the planet? So um, from, from, from both, I guess, if you really stretch off to the planet's atmosphere, yeah. the big question of the um, electronic transition in water volume. Yeah, so, so this is a, a, a little talk. The, the star is a bit bright in the X rays in the UK as well, but it still remains quite faint. It's, uh, it's very hard to observe in those wavelengths. Uh, so, I don't exactly know. I know that it's been done. Generally, on, on, on stars nearby the sun, but not if it has been done on stars like that one, uh, which are small, quite small, so they don't emit as much. Uh, but yeah, but uh, I'm pretty sure someone will try. We want to learn as much as we want. Uh, the reason, actually, we would want to do that uh, is to understand how much extra and UV impacts the planets themselves. Because, for instance, uh, UV radiation changes the chemistry of our Earth. From the oxygen, it uh, basically splits uh, uh, the oxygen uh, into two oxygen atoms and then we combine them in ozone, for instance. And ozone then protects us from UV. And so we can see actually the ozone uh, uh, signature in some of the, the data that I showed you. And that's, uh, that's very interesting. So um, knowing how much uh, of the chemistry is influenced uh, by, by UV and X ray is very important. Uh, and we have gathered already data, uh, some data on that, but it's still hard. How stable and long live those stars like Trappist-1? These can live pretty much forever. Uh, they, yeah, so we have a problem actually measuring the age of this star uh, because it, it takes 
so it changes so little. So the, the sun changes. It, it starts young, it's quite big, then it contracts. And then it takes about you know, seven billion years to rise up a little and it just pops up quite suddenly. But because these changes happen relatively <coughs> fast, uh, we can sort of notice if the star is slightly bigger or not and, and measure the edge from uh, how big it is. For this one, actually, once they've contracted uh, from their birth, they actually remain the same size for almost indefinitely, uh, which makes it very hard to notice any change and so very <coughs> hard uh, to know uh, the age. So on the sun, for instance, the evolution, natural evolution of the sun means that the Earth is about to leave the habitable zone, a bear, a few million years. Yeah, so it used to be that the, the Earth was more in the center of the habitable zone, and this has shifted uh, now, and the Earth is on uh, the inner edge. The sun has got hotter and bigger uh, within this. So we don't expect this to happen, actually, for tropical stars and stars. Yeah. Yeah. Do you think it's likely that the James Webb uh, space telescope will be looking at the Trappist system or whatever you've been known by then? Oh, we certainly hope so. For that, we need to apply. So we, we, we put a proposition uh, to basically the, 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 the people who run the telescope. Uh, the project is assessed. And then we decide or not uh, to, to observe uh, our peers, uh, other scientists. So we know already that um, for each of the planets, we need to collect about 30 to 50 of the transits in order to, to make uh, good uh, deductions about what's inside the atmosphere. And that's certainly something that we hope uh, to be good enough. I mean, that's that actually the whole point of constructing Speculos was to provide planets for the James Webb, because no, no other program could do that. If they were detecting something more like Earth, around something more like the sun, then James Webb would not help here. So we've, we saw that James Webb has a unique capacity for planets like uh, Earth, but orbiting stars much smaller uh, than the Sun. And in that, uh, James Webb is very, very well suited. So you expect more.